Hi, I'm Kevin Alvis with Big Talk Podcasts. I believe that everyone needs to treat themselves for a job well done. Whether it's surviving a workday jam-packed with mind-numbing meetings or that five-mile bike ride down the lake with your friends, nothing says, I fucking crushed this like a delicious cold beer. And there's no finer place to treat yourself than Chicago's northernmost taproom, Howard Street Brewing. Just steps from the Howard Street Red Line, Howard Street Brewing offers a cozy 37-seat taproom that's perfect for catching up with old friends or making some new ones. And don't let their one-barrel system fool you. It's perfectly pumping out a rotating menu of amazing beers like Rogers Proud Pale Ale, the Better Late Than Never Pilsner, and the This Is What Happens Larry Belgian Saison. Not sure what to try? Get a flight. Try them all. Like that beer and want some for the after party? Grab a few growlers for the road. You want some sweet merch with your beers? They've got hats and t-shirts ready for you too. So if you're in Chicago or planning a trip to Chicago, be sure to check out Howard Street Brewing. Open Tuesday through Sunday. No cash, cards only. Oh, and did I mention that there's entertainment every Tuesday night and trivia every Wednesday night? Oh, 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 and did I mention that you can have food from all the local spots delivered right to your table? Oh, 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 and did I mention that they're pet friendly? This place is the shit. So check out Howard Street Brewing, located at 1617 West Howard Street in Chicago and at howardstreetbrewing.com. Be sure to tell them Big Talk sent ya. Welcome to Based on a True Story, where Chicago's best writers and storytellers take their true personal stories and adapt them into wild tales of fiction. Recorded live the fourth Tuesday of every month at Howard Street Brewing, located at 1617 West Howard Street in Chicago. Our first story comes from Chicago writer and producer Kay Dixon. I needed to find the perfect place. I was born and raised on the south side of Chicago. I've lived in the hood my entire life. And at this point, I no longer had the energy for another hood experience. Earlier this year, my lover abandoned me, leaving me broke while unemployed, and I had to resort to turning tricks for survival and shelter. Therefore, I needed a break, a cool mental break. I couldn't take another siren or police chase or gunshot or gun pulled on me or another threat. I couldn't risk getting jumped on again or anything remotely symbolizing or resembling Chicago. I had to get out of the situation, but how? I worked my ass off hustling, sucking, and fucking, and I saved my money. And when I had a cool two grand, I decided it was time for me to move around. And I guess I needed to relax just a little bit. I needed to just be. So I chose the smallest city in the smallest county of New Jersey. Kearney, New Jersey. In Hudson County. And whenever people ask me where I live and I tell them Kearney, they always say, I beg your pardon, because, yeah, it's just that small. In between fucking and sucking, I did apply to jobs in New York City because when you live in Jersey, you got to work in New York City, right? I mean, after a week for looking, of looking for a job, I found a receptionist position that started the following Monday. I packed up my scripts and my suitcase and I fled. I bought my crackhead landlord an eight ball of cocaine, a can of beer, a fifth of vodka, and a carton of cigarettes just to keep him distracted just for a little bit. I asked for his car to go to the store, which is less than five minutes away, and I headed south on Interstate 57 to New Jersey. 
The second order of business after finding a job when moving is to look up apartments on Craigslist. Now, I had used it in the past, but now there seems to be this recurring theme of scamming. The landlords wanted you to send money and all of your personal information before even viewing an apartment. I also noticed how the Jerseyans were snotty, hoity-toity-ish. They didn't want to talk with you unless you had a Jersey area code and or, that, and or spoke with that dumbass Joyzy accent. After 23 hours of driving and stopping at random hotels and rest stops along the way, I arrived in New Jersey. I pulled into a diner and I grabbed a bite to eat. I decided that I could sleep in my car until I found a place and New Jersey seemed to be a safe enough place in which to do so. So over the next week, I must have contacted at least a dozen landlords. And one girl tried to convince me that Brooklyn, New York was only five minutes away from Kearney and clearly it was not. But I thought, mm, maybe it's a great spot. She literally sent me to Brooklyn, New York and tried to sell me on the idea of a living room in a crack house as a bedroom. All she was concerned about was me sending her a cash app for $250. She didn't have a lease or anything. Matter of fact, she asked me if I had a lease. She said that she was gonna move in the other bedroom and I asked her where the landlord was and she said that he had stepped out for a minute. <laughs> I asked her, well, why she was showing the apartment if she was a tenant she claimed that the landlord asked her to help him out. Her story just did not add up. The third bedroom had a twin-size mattress on the floor with beer cans and cigarettes and an ashtray next to it. I mean, classic crackhead shit. Mm -hmm. And the kitchen didn't have a fridge. The gas and lights were off. The apartment was abandoned and sketchy. I have to hand it to her, though. She was really trying to go all the way with the scam. I finally had to break down and tell her that I am from Chicago, and if she were to ever play with my money or scam me, her body would be found in this same abandoned apartment because I didn't have time for her to play with me or anyone else about my money. I'm just like, ma'am, please. <laughs> my little cousin's boyfriend told me about an app called Spare Room, and after I downloaded the app, I searched for a place in and or at least 30 minutes from Kearney, New Jersey. Now, the choices were very slim. The first place was a dump for $750 a month in Elizabeth, New Jersey. Nice and affordable and all, but the contact person, landlord, seemed a little weird. Like, she exposed her lesbianism to me through the door, and she was very adamant about me not having male company. No males allowed type shit. And I'm just like, I had to explain to her that I was a grown-ass woman with male friends, three male sons, and a host of male cousins, and anything could happen to them at any time, and I must be accessible to them and they to me. And besides, who else is going to put on my dresses and shit? I mean, you know... <laughs> I had to keep talking to myself to try to stay in the pocket mentally, like, Karen, chill, this is not Chicago. You do not have to be so aggressive. The second point of contact talked so much that her energy drained me even while just being on the phone. I mean, there was no way that I was going to be able to live with that, even if it was for only $14.50 a month. And then I saw the perfect place on a listing. It really caught my eye. I mean, the listing was a modern three-bedroom apartment with a private bedroom, bathroom in the master bedroom for only $625. Now, this was for sure a scam, right? <laughs> but I couldn't. I called him anyway. The property owner agreed to show me the property on Saturday at 5 p.m. It was a Thursday when I talked to him. On Saturday, I called to confirm, and the landlord informed me that his wife had just passed and asked if we could postpone until the next day, Sunday. I was bummed out because, to me, it felt like another scam per usual. 
I patiently agreed to meet him the next day. But wait, his wife died the day before and he's back to business the next day? He must really need the money. But while driving to the property, I exercised the spiritual practice of envisioning myself and actually living in the space. Driving up to the white picket fence, Robert, the owner, met me in the driveway. He was the short, fatherly type with the bald head with ketchup on the side of his mouth. He had dark skin with a Latino accent, so he's probably Puerto Rican or something. But I couldn't tell because, unfortunately, I am ignorant of Latin accents, and they all sound the same to me. He just stood there smiling, and when I got out of the car, he greeted me with a hug. Hello, daughter, how are you? Robert hugged me. Welcome to New Jersey. How was your trip? He genuinely inquired. I lied. Oh, I've been here for a minute, a little over a month, actually. I'm in, I'm in Jersey City, but nevertheless, and I am awfully sorry about your wife. You have my deepest condolences. Thank you, he replied, but I'm okay. She was a very ill woman. Mental illness kills, you know. He seemed sad, yet he proceeded with the showing. Oh, Jersey City. I don't go that way. Too many riffraffs, if you know what I mean. He waited for an answer, but I didn't give him one because I knew exactly what he meant. He was talking about black people. Black people are always who other races refer to when they talk about riffraffs, especially in New Jersey. And he winked at me as if we shared a secret, and we didn't. Mm -mm. <laughs> the riffraffs were from Brooklyn, and they flooded the small city, Jersey City, when they didn't have the money to live in New York City. It was a front for those who needed to still feel important by saying that they lived in New York. I brushed off the insult by pointing to the dog in the window. Oh, he's cute. <laughs> Referring to the cocker spaniel barking ecstatically at the window. She's cute, Robert corrected me. That's our little teacup. Hmm. We call her teacup, he answered proudly. Now, I know damn well that this is a cocker spaniel breed, but okay. <laughs> teacup it is. Well, come on in, and I'll show you around. I'll show you the back of the house. The back? He's only going to show me the back? It's another scam, right? I thought. I rolled my eyes. Uh, no. I want to see the whole house, I responded very anxiously. I was adamant about not being taken for a fool. Again, who do these East Coasters think that they are? I am not the one. He noticed my hesitance and cocked his head slightly to the right, looking at me with the questioning eye. Like, yes, of course I'm going to show you. The whole house, I just wanted to show you outside first. And then I'll show you inside. And that's my time, and it's to be continued. Our next story comes from Chicago actor and playwright Christopher M. Walsh. Before I go any further, I just want to state for the record, I am not saying it was aliens. <laughs> I want to make that crystal clear for any conspiracy theorists here or for any government agencies that might be listening in. When I say UFO, I'm applying the strictest definition of the term. There were objects, they were flying, and to the best of my knowledge to this day, they remain unidentified. 
I was 19 years old on Thursday, March 19th, 1994, and it was me and my best friend Eric in Eric's car, a guacamole-colored 1979 Chevy Impala we called the Green Monster. We were on a stretch of road in the northern part of Muskegon County, Michigan, an area that has no use for streetlights. If you haven't been through that part of Michigan, it's mostly miles and miles of trees, occasionally interrupted by auto shops. It is hard to comprehend how complete the darkness is in places like that. Not like the dark inside a cave squeezing in on you. This darkness expands outward, infinite. It invites you to disappear. The only way to maintain one's connection to reality when faced with such an abyssal expanse was to blast whatever music you had as loud as you could through your open car windows. Jane's Addiction worked well. Uh, Nine Inch Nails, Ministry, Tool, Rage Against the Machine, really anybody from the first three Lollapalooza tours. <laughs> but on this night, we tempted fate. We kept the windows rolled up the better to hear what was on the tape. I should probably back up to give you some context. My dad was an investigative reporter for the local newspaper. Being an investigative reporter for the Muskegon Chronicle doesn't sound particularly exotic, but I will state with pride that my dad managed to get up to some shit. He got the mayor fired. One time, he asked me to come out to his car. He had something he wanted to show me. He opened up the center console compartment, and I saw what turned out to be a five-round Smith & Wesson Airweight 38 Special. Why? I asked. Because he was working on a story about an organized crime ring, and a buddy of his from the FBI told him it might be a good idea. Yes, I have always found my dad to be generally terrifying. But if there was going to be some weird shit out there, like what was on this tape, yeah, my dad was going to get his hands on it. And I, being generally kind of a fuck-up back then, made a copy of the tape. Because I thought it might be, I don't know, fun. Maybe. I've never been good at planning things very far in advance. The first 10 minutes of the tape was a montage of phone calls received by the Ottawa County 911 Center on the evening of March 8th, two nights earlier. The calls came from all over Western Michigan and the callers all reported seeing brightly lit, fast-moving cylindrical objects in the skies between Muskegon and Holland, Michigan, a little less than 40 miles south. And this was just a sampling. The 911 Center received over 300 calls that night. Most of the remaining 20 minutes on side A of the 60-minute cassette consisted of a phone conversation between an Ottawa County Sheriff's deputy and the radar operator at the National Weather Service Station in Muskegon. It was not as dramatic as you might want it to be. There was a lot of technical jargon. But basically, the deputy tells the radar operator about the calls they've been getting, and he asks the operator to take a look and see if there's anything weird out there. So the operator looks, and he does, in fact, see something weird on the radar. He's able to confirm the presence of multiple objects, at least four, 
in a diamond-shaped formation moving over Lake Michigan. Later, comparisons with satellite imagery would show that the objects spent most of their time a little farther south, over the middle of the widest part of the lake where the winter's ice had already completely melted. The objects appeared to accelerate and make changes in direction and altitude at such speeds that the operator had to check multiple instruments to make sure the radar was functioning properly. It was. Both participants on the call remained calm and professional while acknowledging the strangeness of the situation. The one moment that broke from this, the moment that made the hair on both my and Eric's arms stand up, happened right around the 15-minute mark when, after observing another series of baffling movements from the objects, the radar operator exclaimed, What the heck is that? The recording finally ends when the operator says he's going to keep watching and make some phone calls. The deputy thanks him for his time, and they hang up. The tape, not quite to the end of the side, continued playing, just a quiet hiss of nothing coming through the speakers. Huh, Eric said. I know, right? I said. Huh, Eric said. I know, I said. Crazy. It's like Close Encounters or something. You'd think I'd say X-Files, but that show was still in its first season then, and I was hardly even aware of its existence. <laughs> the tape reached the end, and the player stopped with a plastic-sounding ka-chunk. And that's when we got hit with the brights. This is a thing that actually happened all the time. It was a shitty game, folks, from the more rural parts of the county like to play. They'd see a car out on one of these dark roads and decide to have some fun with it. They'd kill all the lights on their pickup truck or whatever and under cover of darkness, drive up until they were right behind you and then suddenly throw on their brights. I think the goal was to see if they could scare you into driving off the road, maybe hit a tree. There had been some serious accidents. The challenge in this game was to do absolutely nothing. If you sped up, they'd chase you. If you slowed down, they'd rear-end you. If you stopped, they might stop too and possibly kick the shit out of you. So you just kept driving until they felt like they'd made their point or got bored or whatever. It was a very powerless feeling, which I think was the point. But there it was. We faced forward and maintained until Eric said, there's another one. I looked back, and for a second could see nothing beyond the glare of the high beams blasting through the rear window of the green monster. But then, passing on the left, came a second vehicle, not a pickup, like I'd assumed, but a dark-colored SUV. It sped past us, and I caught a glimpse of a person in the SUV's passenger seat looking at us. They were wearing sunglasses. It was pitch fucking blackout, and this dickhead was wearing sunglasses. The SUV swerved in front of us and then decelerated, leaving Eric with no choice but to slow down as well. I had so much adrenaline pumping through me, I was getting nauseous. It was obvious, looking at the shiny black vehicle forcing us to stop, that this wasn't just some rednecks looking for fun. We came to a stop in the middle of the road. I heard the sound of car doors opening, and two figures emerged from the SUV in front of us. We were still five years away from the first Matrix movie, but there was something 
instantly recognizable about the image of a white man of indeterminate age, clean-shaven, boring haircut, wearing an off-the-rack gray suit and unremarkable tie and sunglasses <laughs> in the dark. And I knew right at that moment that no one was going to see me or Eric ever again. In six months or so, some hunters would come across the rusted out shell of the green monster, but there would be no trace left of us. I looked at Eric, and he looked at me. An ear-splitting sound, like the whistle of a boiling kettle auto-tuned and amplified through about a million speakers, ripped through the air and made everything vibrate. Terrified as I was of the men in their suits, I could do nothing but jam my hands over my ears, duck below the dashboard, and squeeze my eyes shut. I knew I was screaming, but I couldn't hear myself over that terrible sound. Everything shook. Or maybe that was just me. But I don't think so. And then it was over. And everything was dark again. We looked up, slowly. The SUVs were gone. The men were gone. The sunglasses were gone. <laughs> we got out of the car. The green monster's headlights revealed nothing but an odd-shaped stain in the road where the one vehicle had been. Behind us was just the old familiar darkness of Muskegon County. The air had a smell to it, unpleasant, chemical, antiseptic. Huh, Eric said. Uh-huh, I said. A rumble like thunder reverberated high above us. Looking up, we saw light streaking through the, the clouds, heading west toward the lake. It was gone a second later. Lightning, Eric said. Uh-huh, I said. Except we heard the thunder first, before the flash. That's not how that usually works. We opted for flood by They Might Be Giants as we made our way back to civilization. We didn't talk about what had just happened because, well, what had just happened? The only thing we knew for sure was that it was probably about time we both got the fuck out of Muskegon. In the days that followed, there would be some news about the sightings. You can't have that many people see something and keep it a secret. My dad even got interviewed by Larry King on CNN, thanks to the articles he wrote about it. His 15 minutes right there. The radar operator, who happened to be the guy who gave my dad the tape in the first place, got transferred out of state. And that was the last we heard about it. A few articles, some stuff in the news, and then nothing. We never found out what was really on that radar. We never learned what really happened on that road or why. We can speculate, but I recorded over the tape.
If you're interested in performing, send us an email at bigtalkpodcast at gmail.com or contact us through our website at bigtalkchicago.com. And be sure to join us the fourth Tuesday of every month for a live recording at Howard Street Brewing at 1617 West Howard Street in Chicago. Blah, blah, blah. Big talk.